Hello, my name is Paul Ryan and I am the founder of GP Consult. I work as both a pharmacist and as a GP and I'm passionate about clinical pharmacology and therapeutics. I really enjoy making international guidelines relevant to those of us in primary care. So this is the fourth in a series of podcasts which I've dedicated to the management of diabetes in primary care. I have broken today's podcast into four main parts. So the first part I'm going to talk about sulfonylureas. Then I'm going to move on and talk about pioglitazone or pioglitazone. The third part I'm going to talk about following up at the diabetic patients with uh, people with type 2 diabetes specifically looking at what blood pressure, what clinic blood pressure we're aiming for, what HbA1c we're looking for, and what lipids uh, with regard to, you know, putting people on statins and the need for statins. And then finally, I'm just going to talk, uh, remind ourselves of the memory aid that I use uh, when deciding uh, on what uh, treatment to use after metformin. So first and foremost, I'm going to talk about sulfonylureas. Now, before I talk about the pharmacology of sulfonylureas, I'm going to just talk about basic physiology. So, as glucose levels rise in the blood, this glucose freely diffuses into the beta cells of the, of the pancreas. What happens then is that this causes a rise in ATP, and then the ATP... Um, sensitive potassium channel on the cell membrane closes off and stops potassium from leaving the cells. This causes the cell to hyperpolarize with the result that uh, calcium enters through voltage sensitive calcium channels. This, when, when calcium enters through voltage cal uh, sensitive calcium channels, insulin gets released. So as the insulin gets released, the blood glucose level or the concentration reduces and then less glucose then goes into the cell so that then the potassium channel opens up again. And that, that happens under normal circumstances. When a person is given sulfonylurea, this binds to and blocks the ATP-sensitive potassium channel and this causes membrane depolarization which then causes the calcium to enter through the voltage-sensitive calcium channels. When the calcium go, when the calcium goes in, it causes then the release of insulin out into the blood. Now, the interesting thing here is that your glucose level might be two, or might be three, but whatever independent of your glucose level, the sulfonylurea binds to and blocks the ATP-sensitive potassium channel, so insulin will be released. So unfortunately, there this leads to hypoglycemia, So because the insulin secretion is unrelated to blood glucose, so it can lead to hypoglycemia. Uh, the second point is that you need residual beta cells to be active in order for sulfonylureas um, to have an effect. Uh, so what we find over time is that sulfonylureas become less effective with the longer duration of diabetes. Now they still do have a role um, and they are second only to uh, uh, metformin 
on the world stage as an oral uh, hypoglycemic agent. But unfortunately, um, due to this hypoglycemia risk and then hence the, you know, uh, limited restrictions with driving, uh, it has fallen out of favor. But they are very effective, cheap glucose lowering agents in early type 2 diabetes, and especially patients who are on regular prednisolone. We say that if they're on prednisolone for polymalgia rheumatica, for example, if they're so we're subjecting we're subjecting people to 12 months to 18 months of steroids for polymalgia rheumatica that can cause a rise in blood glucose and that's where the sulfonylureas um, are particularly effective um, if they didn't improve things pioglitazone or pioglitazone is also a very good agent in this setting as well so the other side effects so the first one i mentioned was hypoglycemia uh, the second one is weight gain so it, it uh, can be used in thinner patients, but uh, it, it can cause weight gain uh, in some patients. And using with caution in the elderly because they do tend to accumulate. And in our local hospital, there's a number of episodes every month in the NECOH uh, with, with glucose less than two. These are people that would have renal impairment uh, or acute kidney injury um, that can predispose can predispose these people to having a hypoglycemia event secondary to sulfonylurea. The final point is that there is no they do not confer a cardiovascular benefit um, so some something similar to your gliptins. So pioglitazone or uh, pioglitazone so um, this uh, acts on the, the peroxisome proliferator activated receptor. So it affects genes responsible for lipid and carbohydrate metabolism. There are a number of issues with with um, because of this mechanism of action, it causes a wide range of adverse effects. So, number one, it can cause bladder cancer. So, caution if the in the in elderly patient, if people have a smoking history, if there's occupational exposure to chemicals or uh, dyes, you know, such as those in rubbers or in the textile industry. Urine should be dipped prior to starting pioglitazone and do not start if the patient's also taking uh, dapagliflozin, which is also associated with uh, bladder uh, increased risk of uh, bladder cancer. So pioglitazone is contraindicated if there's a history of heart failure because it can cause heart failure and can also cause weight gain. Uh, the other adverse effect is that it can cause ver it increases the risk of ver fractures such as vertebral fractures. And the final thing is that if the two may, two positives with it is, number one, it doesn't cause hypoglycemia. And the other thing is that it is effective agent at reducing the HbA1c. It reduces it by about 7 millimole per mole, which is something similar to your sulfonylureas or your glyphosins. So, um, and just the next the next uh, part of the podcast to talk about is follow-up for patients with type 2 diabetes. So I said already, there's, you know, we focus on blood pressure, HbA1c and lipids. So blood pressure is hugely important and we aim to have a clinic blood pressure of less than 140 over 90 if the patient is less than 80 years of age or it's less than 150 over 90 if the patient's over 80 years of age. So and this is as per the NICE 2019 guidelines. If the patient has uh, chronic kidney disease, so an EGFR uh, less than 60 over a three-month period, and they also have diabetes, well, these we've tighter regulation on these, and the, the clinical pressure should be less than 130 over 80. 
the second important uh, point is that the HbA1 it's just looking at the HbA1c so the patient should be stepped up on treatment when the HbA1c hits 48 uh, if on lifestyle we say so they should be started on metformin and then if it hits 58 then you need to add in a second agent the second agent is either a gliflizin and glyptin or a glutide and I usually get the pharmacists or doctors to stand up uh, when I'm uh, doing my uh, my diabetes dance so I get them to put their hand in the costophrenic angle for gliflizin so it's fine uh, uh, gliflizin can be started as long as the EGFR is greater than 60 and then I get them to pretend as if they're having a pint of Guinness or uh, uh, some alcoholic beverage because gliptins are safe as long as that they, um, that there's not a history of uh, alcoholism or pancreatitis because it can cause that. There's a risk of that. And same with the with the glutides that uh, uh, um, these are injectable formats. We say subcutaneous um, formulations, so they're fine and they're safe as long as the person hasn't had a chronic pancreatitis or alcoholism. So um, just to go back over that again, you if the patient has 48 millimoles per mole to start metformin, and then if they hit 58, uh, you start them on a second agent. Uh, and then if it hits 58 again, you start them on a third agent. So the target then um, is HbA1c of 53 millimoles per mole. Just to talk about lipids in primary prevention. So the NICE and the sign differ slightly in this. The NICE guidance states that a torvastatin 20 milligrams should be started in patients who have a Q risk of 10% or more. And that was controversial at the time because it was always 20%, but now they're saying this. If the patient has a Q risk of 10% or more, they should be started on a torvastatin 20. Sign in 2017 stated that a torvastatin 10 milligrams should be taken once daily at age 40, regardless of what cholesterol level they have. So it's uh, just of note, if you have a 40-year-old male, type 2 diabetic, is sitting in front of you with no other risk factors, he has a Q-risk 3 score of 4%. So so some of these patients may only have a, a risk a Q-risk of 4%. So, so um, I suppose just work bearing that in mind and knowing the difference between the two guidance. If you are starting a person on a statin, you aim for a greater than 40% reduction in non-HDL cholesterol in both primary and secondary prevention. And both sign and NICE agree with that. Just to mention antiplatelets, these are not for primary prevention of cardiovascular disease. And then finally, then secondary prevention. So post-MI in that, so the patient should be on aspirin and a torvastatin 80 milligrams. So that brings me to the end of this podcast series on diabetes. I hope you found it beneficial and I'm looking forward to delivering my next podcast. Thank you. <music>